My name is Pastor Matt. I'm the pastor of Christian development here at Bridgeway, and uh, I'm here to uh, do part seven and close out our Who is Like Our God series in the book of Micah. Um, I don't know if you've realized it, but the last six weeks, we've had five of our different pastors preaching through Micah, and I'm going to be the sixth, which means that you're getting the book of Micah in stereo. Now, what's also funny about this is that I've been on sabbatical for the last two months, which means I have not been here for the entire series, and I am closing it out. Awkward. But this is where the app is actually something that's very beneficial, which is why you should download it, because I went on over the last weekend and binge-watched all six messages in one day. We're used to binge-watching now. You have Netflix and Hulu. So I binge-watched all of them and was able to kind of get all up to speed, really listen, go through the notes. And so uh, I am going to walk us through a little bit of an overview of the last six weeks, but, uh, but it's going to be an awesome time. But because we're a forgetful people, I just want to remind you of a few different things in the book of Micah, just to get our bearings again, so that if you haven't been here, you're like, I don't even know what the book of Micah is about. I can give you a couple basics. Or if you have been here, you forgot it all anyways. So we're going to just review it real quick. So number one, Micah was a prophet who spoke to both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. So they had divided and you had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And he was preaching in the south, but his messages were going to both. And he was a contemporary in about the 8th century, about 701 down into the mid um, or, or, or late 600 BC. But he was a contemporary with the prophets Isaiah and possibly even Jeremiah. Jeremiah mentions Micah in his prophecies. But Isaiah and Micah especially would have crossed paths, which means Micah may have been in Jerusalem one day and was running in to Isaiah, who was also a prophet. And you just kind of can imagine that, them running into each other, and Isaiah and Micah just being like, is this voice really loud in your head too? Yeah, yes. And then Isaiah going, but did you have to walk around naked? Micah's like, no, <laughs> praise the Lord, right? And so these guys were both giving messages, though, to Israel about the things that needed to change in their lives especially regarding the social and economic conditions in their land. And you're going to see that Micah was indignant. He was super upset about how all the rich and the wealthy and the powerful were using every opportunity to exploit the poor and the weak. And so the entire book of Micah, if you haven't noticed already, is a back and forth movement between judgment and deliverance, judgment and deliverance. And, and you're going to end up seeing or hearing, if you haven't noticed it already, very skillful metaphors that come out as these emotional outbursts of hatred for the wickedness that's going on in the land. But then it's matched by this joy and this confidence that he communicates about the promise of redemption and hope. But it's very emotional and it's very skilled. And so this book becomes very challenging. It's not an easy or comfortable message. It's kind of like when a doctor or a dentist, and I know we have a few of those in the house, it's like when you go to a doctor or a dentist and you go and you find out some bad news. And I'm not talking about bad news that's unexpected, but something that you like understand. Like for instance, I'm going to a doctor appointment here on Tuesday morning, and if I go in and he ends up saying, Matt, you have high cholesterol, I'm gonna know all the things I've been doing to cause that. I know the things that I can change. And that's what the doctor's going to start telling me. He's going to tell me the hope. But if you do this, and you do this, and you eat like this, and you do this, that can change. And that's how the book of Micah is going to come. It's not this easy message, but there's hope. 
So let me walk us really fast through what all these different pastors in our church have walked us through in the text. So week one, Micah chapter one, Bishop Parnell walked us into these challenging and direct words, and he helped us see that people often resented what Micah was saying. And part of that was because they were dealing with this question of reverence. What is God's character in God's heart, especially if you're hearing terms of judgment? How does God deal with his people? And Bishop Parnell did a great job of showing us the disciplines that are appropriate to a proper response to God's judgment. He talked about prayer and confession and repentance and renewal. And he said this beautiful statement near the end of his message. He said, the development of our spiritual growth begins with acknowledging our need to grow and open our hearts to God's correction. And he kind of set the tone. Week two, Micah two, Pastor Lance took us deeper into understanding judgment and that every judgment book, like the prophets, is an answer to prayer. But in order for that prayer to be answered, major upheaval often is gonna happen in people's life. But Pastor Lance also talked about how we're not dealing, we're talking about God's wrath. We're talking about correction. This punishment and correction is not wrath because wrath is not for God's children but correction is for our good. It's for our freedom. And he also showed us how Micah was addressing the wealthy who were seeking their best interest. Going into Micah 3, week 3, Pastor Lance continued talking deeper and revealing what the chapter said about the nasty leaders in Judah and Israel at the time, and that the greatest weight of justice falls on those leaders. And it's still, he still showed us that God knows what needs to happen that he will get us there, that he is listening. He has not forgot, but he is watching, and so we can be encouraged that God is going to act, that God is going to save. Week four, chapter four, Pastor Lance, he preached a lot, continued in talking about how this judgment is not forever, and this judgment is here to transform us. And he said a great statement reminding us of a famous writer, Henry Blackaby, and he says, you can't go with God and stay where you are. And that's one of the reasons God works to transform us. And he gave us a couple pictures of a forward glance in chapter four to the future kingdom of things that have not yet been fulfilled. And he kept talking about how Jesus was gonna transform our society and he's gonna function as the appropriate leader that Israel needs. But in the meantime, judgment is coming. Week five, Micah chapter five, Pastor Brian came in and he got a chance to unpack one of the most significant prophecies about the coming of Jesus in Micah 5, 1 to 4, about a shepherd coming out of Bethlehem that would be raised up as a ruler in Israel and that would stand and serve the people. A profound prophecy, but that prophecy is all in the context of God wanting to make us free, being the right leader that deals appropriately with injustice and that deals appropriately with our idolatry. And that when a God like that comes, we are able to be made free. And he unpacked some of the idolatry in Israel's culture and some of the idolatry in our culture in those messages. And then last weekend, Micah chapter six, Pastor Ryan on Saturday and Pastor Brian on Sunday, they took us into chapter six where you see Israel on trial for the wickedness that they had lived. They're on trial for how they've dealt with the covenant. And and Pastor Ryan especially talked about how the people of Israel were a distracted people who became very confused. And because of that confusion, they started living in compromise and they were doing the exact opposite of what the Lord desired of them. And you're gonna see that God has gone to such great lengths 
for them. And so the people try to express and pour out everything they'll go to great lengths to do and how they'll bring all the sacrifices. And then they talked and unpacked Micah 6, 8 and how God really tells us the type of posture and identity he wants us to have and that how that can only happen through him. Now, that's a lot. That's our quick recap, right? You can go binge watch them on the app. But, but here's the thing. I want to give you one more tool and resource to understand not only the book of Micah, but how you read every prophet in the scripture. And this is something that I wish I would have learned a long time ago. And it was, you know, 15 years ago, but I wish I would have learned it when I was in like high school or junior higher so that I would know how to understand the prophets. Because when we read the prophets, most of us read it and we go, huh? Now, I want you to write this down in your notes, okay? I know some of you guys are waiting for the fill in the blank. It won't come till the last minute of this message, just so you know. That's just to spite the fill in the blank. Okay, I want you to write this down though. Write down Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy 28, and Deuteronomy 30. For Deuteronomy, you can just put DT. I always remember Deuteronomy as dude, they're onto me. Good way to remember. Okay, now here's the thing. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, and 30, these are all part of the covenantal law, but they're a specific piece of the covenant where it explains to Israel, if you take the covenant seriously, and if you obey the terms of the covenant, I will bless you. But if you disobey, you are going to experience curses. And so Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, it breaks down that if you obey, here's the blessings. And it gives very specific language. And then it will say, but if you disobey, here's the curses. And it gives very specific language. And the prophets, 80% of their vocabulary comes from those covenantal chapters. So that when they're telling Israel about what they're doing or what is going to come, they'll pull terms out of those chapters to help the people see this isn't just a random warning. This is a warning tied back to what God said to us in the very beginning. And it helps you read every single book of the prophets. I remember in my class, we had to have those chapters out and we had to go through all the prophets and just highlight the parallels. And there's millions. Okay, thousands. Deuteronomy 30, though, takes everything a step farther because Deuteronomy 30 has this text where it says, but if you return to the Lord your God with all your heart, if you forsake your ways and you come back to the Lord, he will restore you. He will renew you. And it actually even talks about him gathering you from exile and bringing you back. And so often you'll hear the prophets using that same terminology and promise to bring the people back. So I, I encourage you to not only write those down, but I encourage you to go home and read those because not only will it help you understand the book of Micah, but every prophetic book you open, you're gonna see that connection again and again. But let's talk now about our text, chapter seven. Um, um, Chapter seven takes all the major themes of the book of Micah and develops them into this crescendo. It kind of builds up and it speaks this powerful message that takes everything that we've been talking about and brings it together. And he does this from the angle of Jerusalem, almost putting on the persona of Jerusalem. So Micah is speaking or writing, but he's saying, I'm speaking as if I'm one of the many people in Jerusalem speaking about what's going on. And a lot of people have noticed that this section especially reads like a lament psalm. And if you've never heard that term, a lament psalm is a psalm of sorrow. It's a psalm of distress. It's a psalm of grief. It's a song that's written to give a backdrop, to give background music of here's how we feel and we need you to act, Lord. And that background music that they set down in the structure of a text, it makes all the difference in how you read it. 
So recently I went and saw the movie Incredibles 2 with our kids. And I have a 10-year-old, an 8-and-a-half-year-old, and almost a 5-year-old. And our 5-year-old can actually handle all sorts of intensity in movies. Sometimes I'm like, he shouldn't watch this, he's gonna be too scared, and I'm surprised that he's not scared. So he can see things and not be scared, but if the music becomes very impending, like Incredibles 2, he's flipping out. So he's sitting next to me, and there's nothing scary going on, but the music's like, dun, 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 and he's like, ah, you know, and his hands over his eyes, but what's going on is people talking, and not even talking about anything scary, but the music, sets the tone, and there's something about his spirit that he can pick that up. And a lot of us, were like that. We don't realize that when you're watching a TV show or a, a movie, how much that music is actually affecting your persona. And that's the, the backdrop of this chapter is this lament, impending distress, and feeling that would come up. So if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be on page 780 in the Bibles in your seats. I don't know what page your personal Bible is, and if you're on your phone, it's like 800 swipes, I don't know. <laughs> but you're gonna see Micah express this heavy burden he has for the state of his society. So Micah chapter seven, verse one, it says this. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. And so the first verse starts with a metaphor of emptiness, that somebody went to the vineyard or they went to the fig tree and they were expecting to get something, good fruit, something they could eat, something that they would delight in, and they desired, and they went, and it was empty. Now, I've been to Israel. Actually, I'm the one that leads our Israel trips. You saw the promotion. It didn't say the dates or the price. So if you want to know about our 2019 Israel trip, there's a table in the lobby that has information about how you can go and understand your Bible one million percent more. You should go. Um, when, when I've been to Israel, I've been in those seasons where there hasn't been anything on the vineyard, and there has. When I've been to fig trees, where there hasn't been anything on the fig trees, and there has. And there's something about going up to something and expecting it to have fruit, and then there is none. To kind of make it maybe more relevant in our days, if you went out sometime with your family and you got like a piece of cake somewhere, maybe Cheesecake Factory or like the Claim Jumper seven-layer chocolate cake, I'm hungry, <laughs> and you put that in your fridge, right? You didn't eat it all or you, or you saved it, and you put it in your fridge and then you went and worked, and a couple days later you were like, oh, I'm gonna go home and have that cake today, and you go home and open the fridge, and it's gone. And you all know that family member that tends to just eat or drink. What you were saying, we know that, we know what this metaphor means about expecting to go find something and nothing is there. That's what this metaphor is trying to tell you. That look at us, we've gone and we're expecting something, but nothing is there. And you're going to see in verse 2 to 4 what that nothing is. Let's look. It says, the godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil. It literally means in the Hebrew, they have two hands upon evil so that they can do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desires of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. And so this empty metaphor of verse 1 is telling you what is missing godly and righteous people. That when Micah or the people look across the land, they realize there is not one godly or righteous man or woman. 
They cannot find them. They only seem to be something of the past, and they're not among the nation now. And then he uses terms to reflect how chaotic everything is, how everything has become warped and evil. It's all murderous, evil hands. Rulers and judges are cheating people, and they were a covenant people that were supposed to be bound by religion and community, but now they're treating each other like warring enemies and like wild animals. That metaphor of tossing the net is what you would do to capture a wild animal. And they're saying this is what they're doing to one another. In verse 3, he talks about how the religious leaders, which he's been talking about through the entire book, and Isaiah also speaks about, they're using intricate manipulation of time and place and people, and they're all destroying one another. God's great desire is to find good fruit, the fruit of righteousness in his people, but the desire of all the people in Israel, of the great people in Israel, is simply to find their own personal profit to find what they desire. And so you're seeing this contrast of wills. Verse four kind of wraps up the metaphor a little bit and it returns us by talking, returns us to these vineyards and trees by talking about briars and thorns. These things that prick you, that hurt you. And these things that should be, should be helping these leaders that should be a help and they should be people that are loving and leading the people, the best of them are useless and damaging. And so these are the things that are keeping the summer fruit from coming. This is why we approach it and there's emptiness. And so Micah, he recognizes, along with the people of Israel, their sinfulness. He mourns the state of society and he turns to the one source of hope. Look at the other part of verse four. He says, the day of your watchmen, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. And he's talking how, about how the state of the affairs of Israel cannot go unpunished. This is real, and it has to be dealt with. God is the one who watches to gather the fruit of the vine, and when there is none, the people are going to have to watch now for the day of judgment. And you have to understand that a watchman had a very specific and very key role in the Middle East. Because as you can expect, what a watchman would do, they would be stationed on the walls and they would look out from the city. So in Jerusalem, you could look out and look south almost 60 to 80 miles. You could look north almost 60 to 80 miles on a clear day and you could see to the Mediterranean on a clear day. And as a watchman, you were looking that if you saw an army coming, armed and ready to take the city, it was your job to go and grab a shofar like the one on the Israel table out there and blow it so that everybody knew that attack was coming. It was your role to let everyone know attack was coming. And the prophets often were considered the watchmen of Israel spiritually. That God was saying, I have words for you to say and you need to say them so the people know. And that the people would heed the fact that you were blowing the horn and warning them about this. But what's going on is that you're having Israel not wanting to experience the warning. Warning after warning has come. It's not just Micah, it's multiple prophets, but they were unheeded. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 10, the people say to the seers, don't see anymore. And they say to the prophets, don't prophesy to us. We don't want to hear it. And that's totally against what the watchmen are supposed to do. They are watching out for punishment, and now punishment has come, verse 4 says. And their confusion is at hand. So then look at verse four. It expands. That's a good time to transition for the ASL. Thank you. Look at verse five. 
Verse five expands on this a little bit more and it says, put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms, your spouse. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members or the men of his own house. Where now he goes, there is chaos in all corners of family and community. The holiest of personal relationships and the closest time ties mean nothing when wickedness is present. Now this is just an echo of chapter six, verses one to eight. He's repeating what's going on and he's reminding them there is a breakdown in the disciplines of community, which by the way, we have classes starting in September and we're doing a class on living in spiritual community. And it's a class that goes through the principles of living with people. I wanted to call it the art of not being a jerk because that's kind of a more appropriate title, but it's learning things like gratitude and hospitality and truth-telling and promise-keeping because these are the things that start becoming lost in our community and it breaks down people living together. And we know, I think, what it's like to see all sorts of relationships out of joint. We know what it's like to have division and injustice and frustration. We know what it's like to have people in our family or in our friendships that we haven't reconciled with or they've treated us so harshly and wickedly and we don't know what to do. And yet the family and the friend was supposed to be the most important and stabilizing structure of life, even in the hardest of times. Think about it, when something bad goes wrong, the first people that are supposed to respond is your family and your friends. They're supposed to be the ones that come to your side and he's saying, you can't even trust these people. They don't care about you. That's how bad things are. And it's showing us that things are crumbling in the land. When God and his ways are not honored, no human bond, even family, can survive. Such a society cannot stand. Not only in the scriptures, but in the ancient Near East, in their literature, anytime they talked about a total breakdown in community, it meant the end of an age was coming. Which is why you can even read into the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3, Three to five, Paul gives a whole list to Timothy about how bad things have become. And he says, check this out. Understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. A short list about the state of things just in Paul's time. And you're seeing that this can happen in all different eras. That the breakdown of family and community is happening. But Micah, he wants to show them that although there's this impending doom, this social condition, this background music that's just so sombering, he wants to give them an alternative perspective, a model of trust. And so he's gonna give them vocabulary of faith that they can look forward from. So look at verse seven, because it becomes a watershed, a watershed moment in this text. Micah says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So he speaks through confidence. God is not just God to him. He is not just the God who acts in judgment that Micah has had to repeat that message again and again and again. He is a saving God to Micah. 
And as the Lord has brought about punishment, he's reminding the people yet again, he will bring about deliverance. He is a God who will save you. And he wants them to understand they can do what they have not been doing this whole time. They can look to the Lord. Because what was happening is everybody in this description we've read in the first six verses and throughout the book are people that are looking to themselves. And you're looking to your own desires, you're looking to your own gain, you're looking to your own profit. And he's saying, no, you can finally look to the Lord. But even more importantly, he says this reality that I think we miss. He says, my God will hear me. He's trying to teach them a reality about communication with God. You saw the announcement about the Teach Us to Pray conference happening next Saturday. I highly encourage you, if you still have the time, to sign up for it. Because that's something that we need to learn over and over and over again. It doesn't matter how long you've prayed and how long you've been a Christian. We constantly need that reminder that the power in prayer is not in the words that we say, but in the reality that we have a God who hears. We have a God who listens. And we have a God who speaks to us. And we can hear him. And that's what Micah wants to start framing their mind by. You have a God that will hear you. And so now you can be strengthened among all this dark cloud of discord. And so he has this pessimism, but it's not driving him to despair. It's driving him more into the arms of God. Into the arms of God that he personally understood, who he personally pursued, and who he personally related to. He was thanking God for simply being God that in the midst of such chaos and corruption, you can look to your God and know that he's a God who hears you. That changes everything. Now the text shifts. Verse eight, you're gonna see him jump ahead and he's anticipating them being in distress, being under attack, being in siege, going into exile with their enemies speaking over them. But now he's saying, I want you to see all of this from the perspective of my God will hear me. And so verse 8, he says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And what he's trying to do here is he, he's putting them into the context of, uh, of realizing that, the em- that there's an enemy being some type of empire or other people standing over and upon them and telling them, your God is powerless. Your God is nothing. You are nothing. We're going to destroy you. And he's putting them into that context. Assyria, Babylon, they were the nations that would do that literally to Israel. But whether or not that catastrophe comes and affects the community, he's saying you will see light from the other end of the tunnel because you'll be able to say things like, when I fall, I shall rise because my God can turn this because he will hear me. When I'm in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me because God can turn this because he can that's when you repeat back. That's your cue. Should we put it on the screens for you? Or? Because he will hear me, right? He's trying to reframe that type of peace. But then look at verse nine. Verse nine, he even moves them into a more personal reflection, interaction with the Lord. He says, but I will bear the indignation, which means the righteous anger of the Lord because I have sinned against him. I wanna read that again. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Now, when I was going through this text, I think I realized 
that despite being a Christian since 1991 and being a pastor since 2001, that I don't think I, I pray that type of confession with such honest conviction as I read here. Where you recognize that you deserve, you deserve judgment. See, sometimes we, we're so on the other side of grace from the cross that we don't even think we deserve anything bad in our lives, which is why we react when stuff goes wrong. But, but to realize that I deserve the righteous anger of the Lord because I have sinned against him. And, and so you see this confession and this submission to God's justi- justice. They've reached this point of being able to healthily accept this. And they can answer that question, what have I done to deserve this? And it's no longer a complaint. They go, I can list everything that I've done to deserve this. They accept that they're gonna suffer judgment. If you wanna write it down, Isaiah 59, verses 12 to 13 echoes that almost exactly. But you guys have to understand, he brings this up because a diagnosis of our sin allows hope. We don't wanna trick one another and treat sin lightly. Self-deception of our sin is like a drug. It numbs and it disorients our spirit. We need to deal drastically with sin. We must not pamper it, we must not flirt with it, we must not nibble a little bit around the edges. We are supposed to hate sin. We are supposed to crush it. We are supposed to dig it out. Paul says we're supposed to flee from it. We're supposed to put it off like taking off clothing that you're not supposed to have on. We must be able to admit that some things are wrong and live by that because we don't want to be people in a church or be Christians that only deal with the symptoms of sin. We want to be people that deal drastically with sin because this is horrible, horrible stuff. God's judgment, God's punishment is real. But something can be done about sin. It's what Micah talks about. It's what Jesus Christ did. But in in this context, you see the rest of verse nine, the second part, they know that this judgment means that things will be righted and that he will then execute judgment on their behalf, not just on them. He's gonna deal with those that are actually wrecking them, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, right? And, and he uses even more idioms to talk about this. He says, God will bring me out to the light and I will experience his vindication. With, which vindication, the translation of it in the English, the, the word just simply means salvation. He will bring us out to the light and you will experience his salvation, which one person last night properly noted to me that the book of John does exactly the revelation of this in Jesus Christ. It takes those terms and shows that this is not just an expression, this is a person. And so look at verse 10. They knew they were sinners, but they knew that they were in the middle of being sinned against. And so they start speaking of the upbuilding and the restoration of Israel. Look at verse 10. It says, Then my enemy will see, and shame will come over her, who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the street. Their enemies are not going to gloat over Israel. They're not going to taunt Yahweh and claim him as powerless. God will make them victorious and approved again. And now they're giving testimony to God's sovereignty in this way. But God's last words are not simply, well, I'm going to beat up your bully and destroy him, so don't worry. Their petition, their petition, their prayer gets interrupted, I believe, by God in verse 11. Look at what he says. 
They're talking about their enemies, and then he says, a day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundaries shall be far extended, and that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. And he starts talking about walls being built up, walls that were going to fall in 586 to Babylon, Walls that Isaiah would say in chapter 60, the foreigners were going to build up for them again. That Isaiah and the, the writers of the Psalms would say that God is the wall of Israel and that God is going to indwell the city so you don't need walls. And Nehemiah is going to return in the exile and he's going to rebuild the walls of Israel and God's going, none of that's going to matter because look what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the two nations that have been your greatest enemies and they're going to come and be part of your land. They're going to come and be part of your territory. One of the things that gets so confused, and I, I digressed on this for too long when I was studying, but that line where it says, in that day the boundary shall be far extended, it's a mistranslation. It's not the word boundary. It's the, it's the word, the, the rule of the decree. And you're like, what does that mean? It, it's the idea of God's law, God's covenant, is going to be far extended beyond borders of a nation. God's word, his covenant was going to go out and do much more powerful things. And so he's talking about future imagery of the kingdom and he's bringing in texts from other parts of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament. Genesis 15 verse 18, Abraham talks about how his offspring will be given land from the river Euphrates to the river Nile. And it's bringing that same connection together. Or look at Isaiah, you don't have to turn there. Isaiah 19, verses 23 to 25. This is what he writes. Same time period. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. What? You will worship, and you will be united with your greatest enemies, God says. And after saying all this, that people would have been like, what? Look at verse 13. It says, but the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. So it's going back to our original metaphor in verse one. It's going back and it's saying, remember that emptiness that you expected something, there's nothing? There's still going to be desolation, but now it's in the earth. And all of this hinges, in terms of understanding it, on how you interpret the word its. See, you never knew that the word its would have such an important connotation in scripture. But when it says its inhabitants, you have to ask yourself, is it talking about the nations from the verses before? Or is it talking about Israel? You guys are used to this. Pastor Lance will give us lots of options, no answers, right? <laughs> With the it's, it, if this is speaking of the nations, it's trying to tell us that the nations are gonna be in the same spot of Israel. If they don't deal with God seriously and they rebel, they're gonna experience punishment, judgment, and desolation just like Israel will. But if the it's is Israel, it means that it's saying to them, all of this that we're talking about, that we've just read in the last few verses, would have happened if you would have obeyed and lived faithful. Which they didn't. And what happens soon after Micah's prophecy is Babylon comes, sieges them, destroys them, and they go into exile. And so I think it's actually trying to paint the picture of saying, 
the fruit of your deeds, it wasn't good. And so desolation did come, but the promise of restoring and of renewal still would stand. And so Yahweh's contending with the nations and he's calling for the people to do justice, but after confession and repentance, he's going to contend for the nation and do justice for it. So there's still hope to come, and that's what takes us into our last six verses. Verse 14, now the people direct their words to God And they say, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. Where now we're getting that shepherding imagery that's dominated the book of Micah, where it's talking about a good leader that can lead us to good places. And you have to understand, that message is strong in this book because there's like 25 to 30 references about bad leaders and bad shepherds. And that message stands out more when you realize how messed up everything is. Sometimes the reason why people resist God's direction and God's leadership is because they don't realize how bad everything is around them and within them. That's why that diagnosis of sin is such an important piece that we're talking about. But as we get this repetitive picture of God as the appropriate leader for Israel, one that they can obey and follow, his revelation of what they should do is worth receiving and worth heeding. And they give a lot of different metaphors that you see there where they talk about dwelling alone as a forest among a garden land where they're saying, we are in a desolated mountain forest that doesn't have a much. We think that Israel is like this always like beautiful, like lots of trees or you're like, no, I never think about that. That's why you should go to Israel so that you can realize there are places like that, but their forests are thin. They're desolate. There's not a lot of trees in Israel. They're saying, we're in this desolate forest and we want you to take us back to the fertile lands of Bashan where the biggest cows in Israel go in grace. Take us to Gilead where they grow all of the agrarian life in Israel. Take us to these places. And as that starts triggering them in excitement, they throw back to the greatest work of God and they remember the marvelous activity of the Lord at the Exodus. And they say, and he's gonna do even greater things. And then verse 16 and 17 tells you what they see as the greater things. It says, the nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall shall lay their hands on their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. The thing that marvels them is the fact that the nations will come before the Lord and finally, honestly worship him. That's more marvelous to them than the Exodus. That their enemies can be brought down and you get all these poetic phrases of defeat and humiliation, but it's so they can encounter the real God that Micah and the people of Israel have known and can know. And that's powerful stuff. And so lost in wonder, lost in love, and praise, they can speak now about the God that they know, the unsurpassable, incomparable work of God. 
And I realized as I was working on this series and just realized altogether that although I've read Micah dozens of times, I've memorized Micah 6.8, I've memorized Micah 5.2, those are the only passages we ever tend to know. Micah 7.18-20, which we're about to read, is one of the most beautiful and one of the most comprehensive pictures of the character and quality of God. And I don't have it memorized. And now I'm making it my goal. And it should be yours too. Because Kidsway will give you keys if you memorize it. No, like because it's a truth that frames my life, your life, their life, our life. So I want you to hear it. It says this, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And so this is where the title of our series comes into play. Who is like our God? It's this. This is our God. And there is no one that acts like this. There is no king. There is no ruler. There is no other God that would ever be this type of person, that would ever act in this type of way. And it's playing on Micah's name because Micah's name, who is like Yahweh, this name is who is like our God. And it's actually the same exact translation. It's the same root. And so Micah is going, my story, my name, my life is this question so that I am constantly reminding you who is like our God, who deals with us so sincerely and so powerfully. This was an echo to something all of the Israelites would have memorized already from Exodus 15, 11, a song that the people sang after God had the Red Sea collapse in on the Egyptians. They sang, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? And so when they hear this, it's supposed to stir that song you learned as a kid and make you go, yeah, there is no one like our God. Our God is amazing. Our God is merciful. Our God is powerful. Our God is compassionate. There's no one like him. That's my king. That's my God. And he gives you these seven qualities by which God wants to be known above all. That through everything that we've been reading about judgment and punishment and deliverance and hope, this is the God you can know. And it's using language from all over the Hebrew Bible. Because one of the things I love people to see is that what God starts in the beginning of Scripture as early in Genesis, is a thread that's going all the way through Israel's history into the words of the prophets, and then it's going forward into the New Testament, into the story of Jesus, into, very, into this very room when you walked in today. That the text has this thread. It's not just old. It's using Exodus 34. It's using Psalm 103. It's using Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22. And you're like, stop telling me verses. I can't write fast enough. And some of you are like, I don't write down anything. I just go on the app and listen to it again. But, but here's, here, here's the power of what's going on in that passage. God uses the three most frequent words for sin in this text. Iniquity, transgression, sin. Iniquity is like crime or guilt. Transgression is literally rebellion. 
And sin is that missing the mark, falling short that you've heard before. He uses three words to describe sin. But he uses four words to describe his treatment of it. Now, I'm not good at math because I'm a pastor. But this is a poetic illusion where it's saying, if there's three words for sin, but there's four terms I use to treat it, I utterly will remove those terms of sin. I'm wiping it out and I'm doing it with the structure of the sentence. Before you even read the words, I'm doing it with the structure of the sentence. And so let me just walk through this one more time for us as we close. It says, who pardons iniquity? Which means to bear up by another, by a suffering party. Isaiah would use the same term when he says in Isaiah 53, 4, the suffering servant will bear the sins of many. It means that he's pardoning iniquity. He's bearing up under suffering. When it says that he forgives the transgression of the remnant, it means that he overlooks our faults. That he takes it and he goes, I don't see that with you anymore. That is not your identity. I don't see you through the eyes of judgment anymore. I see you through the eyes of mercy. But this is my favorite part. It says he does not stay angry forever, but delights in showing mercy. Chesed. Unconditional love. And I want you to catch this. God does not just talk about mercy. God does not just speak about it. He doesn't just have his prophets say it. God loves it. God delights in saving people. He's a God that although you read things about justice and judgment and punishment, he's a God that looks at every person and goes, no, I love saving you. I love washing you and making you clean. That gets me excited because that's my purpose as your God. That's the God that we get to know and we're only halfway through. And then he says he will again have compassion on us. That's this term, racham, which means a tender, unconditional love that a mother has for the child in her womb. Which if you've ever been uh, a woman that's pregnant or you're a, you know, a husband that your wife was pregnant and you know how much concern and protection you take to protect the womb, right? That if you're falling down as a woman, you're finding a way to fall without landing on your stomach. If your other kids are coming by and they're gonna bump you, you're kicking them away. You're like, don't touch this baby, right? <laughs> You're watching what you're eating. You're, you're supposed to watch what you're eating. You know, you're doing all these things because of the care of this child in your womb that you've never met. That's a deep level of compassion, and it's saying God has that for you. And then it says he will tread our sins under our feet, that sin is treated like an enemy that God actively destroys, and he goes, I want you to destroy it with me. And he says you will throw, off, you will throw all our iniquities into the depths of the sea which is God saying, this is gonna be fully removed from my sight. Not gonna hold any of these things against you. And then it finishes, you will show faithfulness to Jacob. That's the people of Israel. And steadfast love, that same word, chesed, that mercy, that, that unconditional love, you're gonna keep showing it to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Again, what God started with Israel. He takes and you follow the thread through Israel's history to this prophecy into the exile, post-exile, and you have Paul writing in Romans 11 about this mystery about how we have been engrafted into the same vine of Israel. 
that same promise, that same covenant, the same reality of who our God is, is our God. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the one that we are able to worship. And so our hope lies on our relationship with the incomparable character of God and his faithfulness to the covenant he has. The essential qualities that God requires of humanity, what God says in Micah 6, 8, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly, God goes, this is me. What I'm asking you to do is me. I'm wanting you to be able to do what my nature is, and the only way that you will be able to do those things is by having encounter and relationship with that God. You cannot do justice, you cannot love mercy, you cannot walk humbly unless you are in encounter with God. You will wear yourself out trying to be religious, reading books, going to church, doing all the motions, but you won't be able to do this unless we have that connection with God. And so we don't wanna be people that shrug off the, the prophetic word We want to get a deep sense of the seriousness of sin and we want to have this huge appreciation of all God is and all he does to deal with sin. We want to know that our lives remain unblessed as long as we are separated from God by the guilt of sin. Which is why every time we take communion, every time you come into church, every time you encounter the word, every time you worship, it's supposed to bring us back into this reality of how drastic sin is, of the punishment and justice God pours out on the cross. And that he does that because of who he is and because of his mercy, because he delights in saving you. And that transforms our world. That transforms our society. Micah begins this song of wonder and praise in his time. Isaiah would sing the same song and expand on it in Isaiah 52 and 53, talking about the Messiah that would come and suffer. Jesus came down and was that Messiah, and he made this powerfully real and personal. That's our Lord. That's our God. And we can live out our life out of this bright and essential truth. We can do it. Now, for those of you that are a fill-in-the-blank crazy person, and you're like, you haven't said the the (laughs) fill-in-the-blank, I save it for the last minute. Keep you hanging. In this hot mess, the chaos that the world can be in that Micah starts as the background music, but then he changes it, the promise that you get is that good things come to those who wait. Because what Mike has been telling the people is, it is coming. The deliverance is right there. And if you wait, you will see. And you will see how it's gonna change how this week goes. It's gonna change how this day goes. The word of God is supposed to change who we are and how we function. And so I'm gonna pray for you here. We're gonna have the prayer team come up. And, uh, and I wanna encourage you, don't, don't leave the prayer team as something that you come up to only when things get really hard. The prayer team are people that are gonna love on you and you can come up and it can be a time of confession that's gonna be private. It can be a time of praise where you just wanna say, man, God's doing amazing things. Can you praise him with me? Or it can be intercession. But make, make use of the people that have committed their time to pray for you. But I want you to close your eyes. I'm gonna read a, a short paragraph from a, from a commentator named Stephen Dempster. 
And uh, I think it wraps up this whole book for us very beautifully. And then I'm gonna pray coming off of that reading. So go ahead and close your eyes so you can focus. Don't fall asleep. This is a forgiven society in which everybody is in desperate need and every repentant sinner is forgiven. Because of divine forgiveness, there is the genuine possibility of a new beginning since forgiveness liberates us from a paralyzed past and it introduces a new future with possibility and hope. But this is also a repentant society that is forging a new way in the world. It has seen a vision of God, and this vision has made a world of difference. With the ancient prophet, we also exclaim in wonder, who is a God like you? And as we turn back into our world very today, it transforms what we do in a worshipful service into a daily practice of pursuing a life of justice inspired by a love of mercy and it finds that the God of the exalted and lofty vision is walking alongside us on the dusty roads of this world to help the needy, the oppressed, those in, who, those in distress. This is the gospel according to Micah from the town of Moreshgoth who lived and prophesied 2,700 years ago and whose word still speaks today to all who will listen. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would open our ears and that we would have a true recognition of who is like our God. That God, we would truly see how, how chaotic and how ruined sin is within us. And that God, we would not just deal with that lightly but we would deal with it seriously and surrender and offer and confess it to you. Because although God, you're a God that corrects and you pour out judgment on this rebellion, Lord, you voluntarily sent your son who voluntarily went to the cross and took that judgment upon him and he bore all the chaos and all the rebellion and all the resistance. I should have borne that. You should have borne that. And he took it. And so God, we adore you and we praise you because of your mercy. We praise you because you're a God that smiles and dances and delights in seeing us made new so that we can stand up tall and look you in the face and be embraced by you. And so Lord, may you embrace us and take us now out into our world into our suburb, into our home, into our online, looking at our phones, and may we now speak and be this truth and this mercy and this love to the world. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. amen.